Everybody had that kind of a day where you just thought, hey, this Ikea furniture is going to go together so easily. You know, I have a bookshelf that continually still doesn't work. I think I did it wrong. But um, in, the, the, one of those funny things about life is somebody can come up to you and say, hey, I, I want to do this want to do this little thing and for some reason it just doesn't work. It is sitting there and it is too complicated, more than it should be. Have you ever had that math class, right? You know what I'm talking about. You, you figured out how to actually do the problem faster than your teacher did. Anybody do that one? You're like, oh, you don't have to do all those steps. This is just how it works. They go, no, 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 no. We want you to go through the, the complicated steps and circle your answer and show all this stuff. Or maybe you were in another class and, and you knew how to write this paragraph simpler and better. And they're like, it's not flowery enough. We love to overcomplicate things. And I think anything that gets overcomplicated like that birdhouse has probably gone through one location. The county. If you work at the county, it's not a knock on you if you work at the county. It's just bureaucracy has a tendency to, com to make things that are simple complex. And th I think that is the definition of bureaucracy, to take that which is simple and make it complex. And for example, we have been trying for years now, or years, it feels like it. We, we had a plan to set out some shade sails out here in our courtyard to keep the heat of everything down. And we we're like, all ready to go. And this could be done in a few weeks. And we're like, somebody's like, no, I think we better check because we don't want to get dinged by the county and things like that. So we took it into the county. And what to us should have been ready to go in like a one-month process has now taken us over a year and a half. And we still have about four hoops to jump through. I think there's some kind of burrowing deer or something we have to watch out for. Um, I'm kidding. They can think of anything they want. It's pretty amazing, though. But so... What's, what may, drives me even crazier is that the last elders meeting I went to, we were talking about this situation with the county, and um, it was brought to my attention that a friend of, of Bill's in Utah has, has seen something very simple done um, when it comes to a county. They have shown up and said, I need a parcel split. Now, that's a pretty difficult process here in California to split your parcel of land up. Well, in Utah, they walk in and the guy goes, all right, it'll be this much, takes the money, walks in the back, pulls out a map, if you've seen one of those before, lays it out on the, on the ground and goes, where do you want it? He said, right about here. And he goes, okay, puts the pencil down, puts a ruler down with the pencil and goes, and puts a note, rolls it up and says, you're done, go home. That's simple. What we do is utterly complex. And what we can often do is take Christianity and make it that complex. That's which is never intended to be crazy complex and insanely difficult. It's become in some people's minds so layered with so many to-dos and so many rules and so much of this and so much of that. And you can't do this. and You can't chew that. and You can't drink there. You know, all of this stuff that people have literally said, well, yeah, I'm spiritual, but I don't want anything to do with organized religion. No, we're not that organized. <laughs> we're not. And, and, and some people have resisted the faith and Christianity even examining it because they think the complexity is involved. And, and what we want to do in this series is say it's really not that complicated. Christianity is a simple faith. But I don't, want to hear, I don't want you to hear the wrong idea here that, yes, Christianity may be a simple faith, but I don't mean simple in the way that a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy makes simple. If you've ever read or seen Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it's this kind of satirical book that, that's out there about all, all things weird and, and, and nerdy. And one of the, they have in this one scene a giant supercomputer that knows everything. And as it crunches all the numbers and all the information, it was asked this question, you know, what is the meaning of life and everything in it? And after thousands of years of crunching this information, in the end it says, I've got an answer. Everybody gathers around. They're all listening attentively. 42. That was its answer. 
Obviously, a, a poke in the side of people who want to ask the question, yeah, your answer is 42. They weren't sure what the answer was. See, that's not simple in the way that I want to talk about it. I'm not saying 42 is the answer to a simple faith. What, what I want to say is it's simple in the way that E equals MC squared is simple. It's simple enough to put as an equation. It's simple enough to know that it's energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. But complexity that's behind it, the complexity that is derived within all of that is so deep, it's profound. Simplicity with profundity is something that's missing oftentimes in our Twitterverse and our world of simple statements that don't mean a whole lot. But when I come to you guys today to talk about a simple faith, what I want to indicate is that this is not just simple and, and meaningless, it's simple but profoundly deep. It's simple and something we should think about. And it was so simple but so deep that it was willing, it was something that would transform the life of a man named Saul of Tarsus. And you guys know Saul of Tarsus if you begin to study your Bible or if you've come to the New Testament. Saul of Tarsus was originally a persecutor of the church, endorsed by, by the Jewish Sanhedrin, the leadership of the Jewish people of the time period in the first century. They saw him as an up-and-coming star, rising with passion and fury, and wanted to stop this cult, this upstart group called Christianity, or, or the way as they knew it. And so he went out persecuting, gathering people, and bringing them into jail, and throwing them in, and into throwing children and women and men, and having them even stoned to death. And he's on his way to Damascus to do this very thing. And in that act of moving up to Damascus, Jesus Christ himself appeared on the road, knocked him down, blinded him completely, spoke to him that, hey, listen, the one that you're persecuting is me and I'm alive and well revolutionized Saul's life. He couldn't handle what he had seen. He, he was prayed over, received his sight back, immediately was baptized and became a proclaimer of Jesus Christ. In fact, would call himself a missionary of Jesus Christ, an apostle, one who was sent by Christ to bring this message to fulfill the word of God. But it didn't go real hot for him, to be honest. Every time he went out there to engage, he found himself being persecuted. He found himself in the situation where there were as groups of people in every town who eventually would rise up against him try to kill him, cane him, throw him into jail, take stones and stone him. There was all of this mass craziness that surrounded this person, Paul, so that he suffered greatly for the sake of getting the gospel out to the world. And finally, he finds himself in a jail cell in, or actually in, probably in a house chain, linking him to the Roman guard. And so in the middle of all that, second, I'm going to grab me a better microphone. That way all of the people watching on Facebook don't have to hear. Oh, no. It's still working. I'm just playing with you. So, um, <laughs> but what we see here is the situation where Paul now has, is sitting in this home where he's chained to a Roman guard and up comes Epaphras. Epaphras was a pastor of, of a town named Colossae that we've been looking at. And he comes and says, hey, listen, there is this very difficult and troubled town setting that's going on. A false teacher has come in telling them all these ways that they can get to know God. And they're starting to listen. Their, their theology isn't strong enough and their, their maturity isn't deep enough so that they are not actually after Jesus. They're starting to follow this man. So Paul pens a letter that we know today as the letter of Colossians. And in the beginning of the letter of Colossians, he reminds them, guys, this is who you are and this is who you're to be and this is who Christ is. And then he takes the knowledge of all of his suffering, he takes the knowledge of all these pieces, 
and he begins to weave a concern and an authority so that the Colossians would listen to him. That's where we land here in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. And he wants to talk about his life centered on one thing called a mystery. So why don't you grab your Bible, open it up. Let's take a look at this on on Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. If you don't have a Bible, they're provided under the seats. You can grab and pull it out. It's on page 983, or you can pull uh, pull up the Bible on the app or on your own app. And so what we have is this sudden shift in Paul's language. He starts to talk about his ministry and he starts to talk about what he has done. And so he says, now I, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, in which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Lots in that section. But basically what Paul is saying is, listen, my sufferings have a purpose. My sufferings that I've gone through have meaning. I want you to hear me. I'm not just suffering for any reason, but I'm suffering for your sake. In fact, I'm suffering because it's part of the Messianic timeline. See this word, it says, lacking in Christ's afflictions. A lot of people have wrestled over that. Does this mean what Jesus Christ did on the cross isn't enough? Is there like a gap that there has to be more sufferings that are added to what Jesus did for for us to be saved? And the answer is no, that's not what he means at all. Paul has been very clear over and over again. Jesus Christ died on the cross, bore our sins, and they're gone. He's given us his righteousness, and that's all we need for salvation. So what is Paul doing here saying that he's filling up what's missing in Christ's afflictions? Well, that word afflictions never applies to the cross. In fact, the word afflictions comes from a Jewish mindset of of how the world works. See, in the Jewish mindset, the world worked in two major ages. On the first age was the the age that began with Adam called the age of evil. It's this evil, dark age that ran throughout history. And then it would be interrupted by this coming Messiah who would then end that age and usher in a new messianic age. But before that messianic age could come, as they read Daniel and they looked at Zechariah and all this information in, in the Old Testament, they believed that somehow there was this affliction and this suffering that was called the messianic woes, the messianic afflictions that all of his saints were to go through until the Messiah came. Well, what happens is Jesus came and Instead, what we get is kind of this layering effect where there's this evil age, Jesus shows up, and now there's a war of ages where the evil age and the messianic age have sandwiched on top of each other. It's already happened, but it's not fully yet. And so Paul is reading that the mission of the church and the work of the church is to go through these messianic afflictions, these things that we are to do as we promote the gospel to get it out there. It's not safe. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. And he says, that's what my suffering is about. It's about this proclamation of this mystery. It's about getting this mystery out into the world and going through this suffering. In fact, he says he was called to this suffering. He says, I have a stewardship from God that was given to me. And that was given to him on that road of Damascus by Jesus. And so Paul literally takes all this information and he sums it up by saying, my life, my suffering, my everything is involved in this mystery. What is this mystery? I like a good mystery. Anybody like a good mystery? I mean, I, Agatha Christie, an Agatha Christie mystery is coming out sooner or later again. And so that's going to be interesting. They're, they're kind of going back because I think most of our modern mysteries are all kind of these CSI kind of things. But the mystery in our case is, is God's secret that he's revealed to his followers. Look at verse 27. It says, 
that this, sorry, verse 26, the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. That's us. God has revealed this mystery to us. There is this secret that God's been holding on to, and he's been dripping it out. And some of us, we love mysteries. Personally, my dad loved mysteries. He grew up reading the Hardy Boys. Anybody Hardy Boys fans out there or Nancy Drew fans, which was like the female Hardy Boys? It was, they were awesome. They sat in my room all my life. I never read them. My mystery... The one I loved was the great, the great mystery solvers of all time, Scooby-Doo. That's right. That's, they were the, look, you always found that it was his old man Winker, you know, whatever. It's the, my, my favorite thing was to see this mystery solved. And it was, what's fun about a mystery is that you, the author knows the ending of the mystery, but what he does is he's dripping these small drops of information to you. He knows how it all adds up and it's your job to kind of figure it out. And this is what's been going on throughout all the history of humanity. God has dropped these drips of this mystery in, in, in. And we all know it's the second person you meet. That's who's going to be in the end. Gee, Scoob, you know, that kind of stuff. But what we got here is no, no, no. Jesus has something radical. It's Jesus that comes out at the end. But we'll see that this mystery that's lined up is interesting. Stop and think. These breadcrumb trails of mystery have been dripped into every soul. First and foremost, when we ask questions like, what is the value of a human? Guys, that's the question of our time. We've never been more turmoiled or confused about the value of human beings than right now. When we already been told that value and yet we're asking questions like, you know, what are you worth? Is it your looks? Is it your age? You're just not young enough. You're not skilled enough. You, you know what? The problem with you is you don't have enough education. That's why you're not valuable enough. We either value on some kind of economic scale or we value on some kind of talent scale or we value on some kind of educational scale or we value you on some kind of looks and beauty scale or some kind of weight scale. Guys, how many different ways do we have to try to claim value upon human beings? What is the value of a human I mean, is a child who's on life support equal to a 93-year-old who's on life support? Or do we fight for one and not the other? These are the questions of our time. Is a baby in utero a baby or is it just something that needs to be wanted? Same thing with a, uh, somebody who's dying of cancer in an old age. Is, is, are they really human or is it something that we need to want or should we just let them die? What's the value of a human? Why are you here? You know, if we're just evolutionary pond scum that's transformed through a long chain of evolutionary events and now we've suddenly become what we are, um, what's, what's the point of being here now? Why now? Why not some other time period? What's your purpose? Why do you exist? Where are you going? And how is it all going to end? You know, is it the Ragnarok that's going to happen? No, no, I get it. It's the, it's the constant changeover of the, great, of the great Hindu cycle of life. Or, or is it actually going to be just what the scientists say? It's all just going to die off when the sun explodes, melts earth, and then eventually the entire universe just kind of peters out in a giant heat loss death with no usable energy anywhere. Well, that's nice. Notice the questions are these mysteries. Sprinkled into the human hearts and into the human souls that we ask everywhere, in every culture, every single human. See, the, the situation is we are wondering, what is this all about? Where is this going? Why am I here? And then the Jewish people began to have answers. God showed up and he started giving them revelations and men who spoke from God and did miracles so they knew it. And in his document, he sprinkled thought upon thought upon thought as a trail of breadcrumbs leading people to one place. 
In fact, we see that when Philip, who is an evangelist, is led by the Spirit down to a river, and he meets an Ethiopian eunuch who is riding along in a chariot, reading from the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, he comes to this interesting space, and Philip's watching him. He says, now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his own mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does, this pro- does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? This Ethiopian eunuch suddenly realizes, hey, what is this? What is this mystery here? Is this about him or is this about somebody else? What's going on? I'm confused How can I know unless someone tells me, he will say. And Philip then begins to unpack the mystery of this section of the book of Isaiah and all of the other little sections he moves through, taking up the mystery and bringing it to the culmination of Jesus Christ. What I want to tell you this morning is that it doesn't have to get more complex than the fact that Jesus is actually the answer to all of the mysteries. He's the mystery that solves the mysteries, that Jesus is the mystery of Christ in us. This is what we have. Now, stop right there, because what just happened is you heard me say 42. <laughs> Jesus. You know, it's like the little preschool kids all sitting in the other room here. And maybe the teacher's sitting down going, hey, hey, guys, okay, we're going to ask a question. And they're like, yeah, they're all excited. And it's like, what's brown with a bushy tail and little pointy ears and eats nuts? Well, Johnny's going to raise his hand. Yes. Uh, sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. Because Jesus is the answer in any Bible. So, you know, how your small groups go, oh, Jesus, yeah, you're right. And this seems to be the leading question. Don't, don't hear me say that. I'm saying E equals MC squared. When I say Jesus is the tip of an iceberg that's so deep and so vast under the waters, we can't even begin to comprehend what is going on in the simplicity of Jesus Christ and the depth that it's about him. It's the mystery. He is the mystery that solves all mysteries. In fact, in verse 27, it says that he is the mystery in us. If you want to look down at your passage, it says that to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is revealed. The mask is taken off. It all culminates and boom, it's Jesus. He is the mystery that solves the mystery. He is the great, this is to be proclaimed, to be known among the nations. It's Christ in us. It's not just Christ of Jerusalem. It's not just Christ of the Jews. It's not just Christ of the Jewish religion. No, this is the Christ that was amazingly for everyone. Whether they're on Australia and New Zealand, whether they're up in Asia, whether they're on an island in Micronesia, whether they're in India throughout Central Asia, whether they're in the north up there in Russia, whether they're out in the west, down in Africa, all the way at the tip to the top in Ethiopia, all the way into South America. It doesn't matter where you live or where you go, what part of the block or where in Corona you are. Jesus is the Messiah for all the nations, for everyone. This is the mystery revealed to us. This is what we get to be excited about. He's the mystery that solves the mysteries of the nation's hearts. The mystery that solves the mysteries within our own minds. See, first of all, it says that this is the mystery which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Well, let's just solve that hope of glory thing. What does that mean? Hope is not, like I said, it's not wish fulfillment. It's 
you know, I ordered it on Amazon and I'm expecting delivery anytime now. That's the kind of hope that we're looking for. Like, I know it's coming kind of hope. And so what we realize, though, is what's this word glory? We hear it all the time. Is it just glory? Is it just what we're going on in worship? Yeah. But it's also this idea of victory. It's this idea of the moment of, of spectacular victory in which the Romans would have these pomp and circumstance parades. And the general would ride down on his chariot with all the army in front of him and all of those who'd been captured before them. And the people shouting, cheering, throwing all their, their papers and their wares and celebrating with trumpets and fanfare. And for today, it's, it's us making that three-point shot and then from the corner at the end of the game to win it it's it's Kirk Gibson hitting a home run out of nowhere when he's been injured and we're going what in the world just happened and we still talk about it because it's glorious that's glory and you've been promised it in Jesus What's my life worth? What's it going to end up being? It is victory and glory. It's victory over the sin that holds you now. It's victory over death that wants to stalk you in your pain and in your aching. It's victory over the meaninglessness of life because he gives you meaning. See, Jesus is the mystery that solves the mysteries. What are you worth? You are worth, as God estimates you, his own son who is eternal and perfect in the heavens, dying on the cross for you. You are of an infinite value. It cannot be taken from you. It will not fade in your age. It will not vanish in weight gain or be earned in weight loss. It isn't accumulated one success after another. It isn't found in sitting in the highest office of the world. It isn't even taken from you when you're messed up on the streets and can't get yourself a house. Your value is unstealable and it cannot be given. It is sealed in the heavens found in Jesus Christ. You are worth his son on the cross. What am I here for? Why now? It says that Jesus Christ has died on the cross to bear your sin, to set you free, to be free from your sins, to be free from the mess so that you can live for him. He has a purpose for you, a direction for you, and it's found in following Jesus. When you follow Jesus, you will stand for justice. When you follow Jesus, you will love your neighbor. When you follow Jesus, you will begin to know the truth and proclaim the truth, and your mind will be opened and life will be lived. It's simple as following Jesus. What am I here for? It's discovered in Jesus. Why is it going to end? Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge. And you don't have to fear because you have the promise of glory, not the, not the promise of destruction. If you're following Jesus. He's the mystery that solves the mysteries. Not just our mysteries of these kind of breadcrumb trails, but the mysteries that sit in the nations around us. See, in the nations around us, they are wondering, who is this God? And um, Richard and Don Richardson does a great job at kind of laying these out. He was a missionary who went down to the Sawi people. The Sawi people were in Indonesia. And in his work with them, he came to this people and he discovered a very odd trait about their, about their value system. The highest part of their value system was deceit. They would bring you in. They would make you friend. They would love on you and care about you, feed you like crazy in order to kill you, slaughter you, and feed you to the tribe. And if you could do it for a long, long time and sustain a false relationship and fake it for years, you are considered the greatest. So Don Richardson comes in, begins to tell the story about Jesus, gets all the way to the end. Jesus Christ dies on the cross and the people start celebrating. And he's like, what is going on? They're thinking, Judas is awesome because he's deceived Jesus this whole time for three and a half years. 
Don Richardson's like, I have no idea what I can do about this. One day there's a ceremony that occurs in which there needed to be peace between two tribes and the chieftain and, or his family had a baby and the other chieftain or so somebody in his family had a baby and they decided what to do was to bring peace. And the way you did that was offer a peace child to the other and they would exchange children so that now you are raising the other person's child. If you killed that child, war was on, it was over. Because you did the most egregious thing that could be done was to kill a peace child. And Don Richardson goes, aha. Do you guys understand that God gave you his peace child and you killed him? The Saudi nation fell apart in repentance, turning to Jesus Christ as they had always known that there needed to be peace with the gods. They didn't know how to find it, but they found it through a peace child named Jesus. Take Bruce Olson, who himself, as a 19-year-old, marched him his way down into the Amazon jungle and got captured by the Mitalones, one of the most vicious tribes known in the Amazon area. And as he's dealing with them, barely surviving the Amazon jungle, let alone the Mitalones, he's trying to evangelize to them, can't get them to understand anything. All they want to do is talk about the prophet who told them one day the banana, from the banana stalks, God will come. And they're like, that's weird. He gets sick, and in the middle of his whole journey, a helicopter drops him back off. He'd finally gotten a hold of a good Bible. And in the middle of his conversation one day, he walks into the village, and he's holding it up like this. And all the people freak out. Banana stalks! Because this is what banana stalks look like when they're done. The banana stalks, and God came from them. The entire meat alone people to this day are Christians and, and bring the gospel wherever they can in the middle of the Amazon jungle. When Paul argued for the God that they didn't know, the unknown God, there was a story behind them that they had longed for this God who protected them from a great famine. Don Richardson layers story upon story from the Incas and the Mayas all the way through culture after culture as Jesus answers mystery upon mystery upon mystery of the cultures and seeking of the God they once forgot. Even Islam waits for Jesus to come to tell them that they're correct. I think they're going to find that Jesus just asked him to come follow him. See, when we meet the Jesus of the Bible, you meet the, the very mystery. So what's going to solve our problem in the United States? What's going to solve us from yelling at each other? What's going to get us together? What's going to make this nation great again? It's not going to be politics. It's not going to be education. It's not going to be found in our entertainment. It's not going to be found in our corporations. Jesus Christ is where it's found. He's the glorious victory. He is the hope of glory. We have a mystery and the answer that needs to be proclaimed. You can't hold it back. You can't hide it away. But it's also not just found in you as an individual. This is Christ in you, plural. And so what we need to see is Jesus, the mystery, is reached through community, not individually. Too many people today think, I can be a Christian. I don't have to go to church. That's not what the Bible indicates. You're saved unto a community. You're not saved by yourself. And so we need to realize, guys, we've got to learn that Christ has saved us into a community. That this is, notice how he puts it here. 
beginning in verse 29, and we'll focus in on 2-2 here. Verse 29 begins, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Any of you ladies like knitting? Any of you, got, any of you millennial guys like knitting? I, I've heard that's a thing. <laughs> but anybody like knitting? Knitting's interesting because when you knit, every loop has to be used correctly. You have to count it. Everything's bound together. It's like, it's like creative knot tying. If you look really close at your clothing, what you're going to see is this is woven. It's, it's pulled together tight. There's a warp and a woof. There are intersections of every fiber. And what Paul is saying is, listen, you want to reach the understanding of assurance of your salvation. You want to reach the understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery in Christ. Then you need to be knit together in love. You need to be in community. If the world's going to see what Jesus is doing, we need to be together, which means the atrocious percentage of evangelicals coming to church, which is one out of every four weeks, ain't going to do it. The average Christian shows up once to church out of every four. We used to be known as a people that gathered together as communities, not just to come to church, not just to sing songs, but to know one another, to gather together and to understand things. You see, what the world is looking for is a community that can gather together under one banner and have conversations again. Because tolerance, my friends, has died. Look around outside. We're not going to tolerate speech that I don't like to listen to. I'm going to yell at you. You know what I tell my children when they start trying to yell at me to listen so that I'll listen to them? I say, just because you're yelling doesn't mean, it's still, doesn't mean it's any more true. When we resort to yelling, listening is over. And it's where is the world going to find a place that under one banner people listen to each other, except that it says right here, if we're knit together in love under this mystery of Jesus Christ, then my Democrat brothers in the room and my Democrat sisters in the room can sit down with my libertarian brothers and sisters in the room and Republican brothers and sisters in the room, and we can actually agree on one thing. Jesus is Lord and his word is the word of God. And from there we should govern everything else. It's not about what policies we have. It's not about what political position we take. It's about what Jesus Christ said. And our rich brothers and sisters and our poor brothers and sisters can gather together to talk about the situations of institutions and personal needs and how we work and what needs to happen. There ought to be massive dialogues occurring in the churches. That's where the resolution comes. Because it's under love. Under Christ. For those of you struggling with same-sex attraction and those of you who are married and those of you who are single can all sit down and agree, sex is tough to get rid of in your life and we need some help and control with each other so we can value abstinence and we can value celibacy again in where it belongs. And we can see what God wants to do through our lives as single men and women and as married men and women. We need to have these dialogues because under Christ is where that one banner is and that reveals the mystery that Jesus has united us. That shows the mystery of what this world is looking for. They would flock to come and have a civil, loving conversation about Jesus Christ, the mystery, and what it means to all of us. But it also simply means that, guys, we got to love Christ, live Christ, and share Christ. We made it simple like this because that's all it's about. How are you doing it? Knowing Christ, loving Christ. Are you in the Word? Are you in prayer? 
You're practicing time away to hear him, to know him. Are you sacrificing over to say, God, it's yours, it's not mine? Are you singing when you get the opportunity to shout out your adoration or maybe mumbling if that's where you're at, I don't, whichever? Are we at a place where we are loving Christ deeply? Are we living for Christ? Are you allowing the expression of Christ to come into your life through the way that we care for our neighbors, the way that we care for each other? Have you got a mystery that is working through you, namely the Holy Spirit? Is it Christ amongst us or is it just Christ amongst some of us? You know, he saved you to a church, to be the church, not to go to church. And some of us go once a month because, you know what, we're just not using a gift that he poured into you. And if you're not using that gift, there's a big hole here God wants to do. And I know that's uncomfortable, and some of you are like, I'm here to rest, and I need help. But no, you don't need that. It's time to move forward. It's time to live. It's time to move because he has a gift to work through you. He has something for you. And maybe it's just as simple as grabbing the next step card today and saying, yeah, I need to figure that out. I think I need to do membership or jump on a team. And throw that out at Connection Central or in a bucket as as it goes by or in in the back, however that works for you. But look, we're not going to find the riches that are found if we're not unified together serving each other because love is a self-sacrificing thing. It's not a taking thing. And as we engage in the self-sacrifice, as we come together, we see that riches form because those in whom the mystery lives are rich. Oh, and guys, I don't think we understand how rich we are. I still think when I say it's the mystery of Jesus solves all the mysteries, I think we still hear 42 not E equals MC squared. I think we don't see the depth that's going on here, that those that Jesus dwells in, they're rich. Notice how he goes on in the text. He, he, he says that, first of all, in 127, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He goes on again, back down to 2.2. Two. He says, in their hearts, may, and that their hearts may be encouraged that being knit together in love to reach all the, what? The riches and full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God and the mystery, which is Christ. Are you assured of your salvation? Do you know where you're going to go when you die? Do you know what's going to happen when you stand before the judgment? Do you understand how you're going to get out of that? Because if you don't, you need to go to Jesus. He bears your sins on the cross. He forgives you and gives you new light. He gives life. He gives you the promise of the resurrection. It is Jesus Christ who offers you these things in his work. But we need to have this riches, this depth of understanding of what he has given to us. It's a riches that, you know what, I don't think we grasp. Look at, look at how deep Paul says this is. Ready to get blown away? Look at verse 3. So the God's mystery, which is Christ, verse 3, in whom are hidden, how much are hidden all? Say all with me, all. All the treasures. How many again? All of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may be, de- may be deluded with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He says, you want to know the answers to all the knowledge and wisdom? You look at Jesus. You go, Greg, come on. Jesus didn't build planes. Jesus didn't give us, you know, scientific exploration so we can get into rockets. I mean, Jesus, actually, I need to press pause on your objections for a second. Very interesting book I want to point your attention to by Alvin J. Schmidt about called How Christianity Changed the World. 
All you need to do is just read the table of contents if you really want to know what, what's in it. But basically what he does in every single chapter, whether it's dealing with technology, whether it's dealing with medicine or whatever, he is, starts with what was the world really like prior to Jesus. And he doesn't just start in Rome. He goes all the way back to the Greco, the Greeks, the Babylonians. He talks about what life was like in Native America amongst the Aztecs and the Incas and all of the other tribes and China. And he says, listen, you want to look at what the world was like? Ubiquitously, they did not care about children. If you didn't want the child, put it out and expose it. Have the abortion, get rid of it. Children were a commodity that wasn't really liked because they wasted a lot of money. If you were poor, you had children because you had no options, but then you couldn't have children because you couldn't afford them. Children were pain, differently than we think of it. And, he, and what changed was Jesus said, do not suffer the children to come to me. And the Old Testament teachings about adoption, suddenly orphanages exploded on the scene. There weren't orphanages before that. There was nowhere for the orphan to be found. Christians picked up children left to be exposed to death and they raised them as their own children. Girls were routinely aborted and destroyed. And the homes of Christians bloated with young little girls who, by the way, were not left in a room to serve the men. They were brought out in a full-fledged relationship in the church because Jesus Christ on the cross died for men and women equally. He didn't die for men, and the women had to become men in order to make sure that Jesus' work worked with them. No, he elevated women. He looked at Mary, and he said, she's doing right sitting listening. And so the church didn't just educate the rich. No, they educated the poor. They didn't just educate the rich boys. They educated men and women equally all the way across. Schools are set up because of the teaching of Jesus Christ. To give a cup of cold water to those in the jails was a new idea. To care for people who are incarcerated. And so entire ministries have exploded about this. And the incarceration system was transformed prior to Christianity and the Christian, and the Christian leadership of Rome. Men and women were housed together in jails. How would you like that to happen? And in the, in the way that we're going as a marriage, I don't know if that wouldn't get reversed, by the way. It's a Christian innovation to separate men and women in jails because it was a protection to the women. It was a Christian innovation to look at the world and think there's order. Let's find that order and make it happen. And, they, and science erupted. It was a Christian innovation to say we need to help those who are hurting and heal those that Jesus sent us to do. And the invention of hospitals and nursing and, and pharmacia, all of phar pharmaceuticals, not pharmacia, that was magic, but pharmaceuticals and the use of things to help people to get better was invented by Christians throughout Christian Europe. Science, technology, medicine, the aid for those who are the, the aid for those who otherwise wouldn't have a good life, as they were called, education, justice, the idea of the individual having freedoms, all come from Christianity. Property rights, freedom of property rights, that invents the very world that you and I sit in. Even the abolition of slavery came through Christianity. You live in a Christian world. And we don't even realize it. The teachings of Jesus have all the knowledge and wisdom. Why are we scared to proclaim this? That Jesus is the mystery that solves all the mysteries. That he is this wisdom. In fact, what we see in verse 28, I skipped over it on purpose. Go back up because it's what Paul's aim and whole ministry is about. He says, this is the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. In him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And that's his goal. 
to see the mature in Christ. Guys, do you want to you know something that happens, happened to me when I became a dad? I realized how immature I was. Anybody else with me on that one? I was like, wow, I'm going to raise a kid. I am a kid. This is not good. You may have started discipling somebody and you thought, wow, I am so mature in my faith. I can't disciple anybody. You may have a roommate and you're thinking, I'm going to help this guy out. Wow, I really have problems. Guess what? There's only one perfect person that was Jesus Christ. You want to model your life after somebody? Model him after mystery of Jesus. The one who is perfect, the one who continues to be perfect, the one who shows you what it is like to love and have joy and peace and patience and kindness. We're going to get into more of this in our spiritual growth campaign this year, but Jesus is that mystery of maturity. It is the aim of the church, it is the aim of every ministry that we would be mature in the knowledge of this mystery, to love him, to live for him, to share him. You don't need to overcomplicate this. Jesus, the mystery of all the mysteries. He solves them all. So here's what I challenge you to do. When you go home today, one of two things. Maybe you need to step up into that ministry spot I told you about. Let Jesus work through you. Grab that green card, this next step card, and let us know. Take it on outside and just say, hey, yeah, I'm ready to start getting engaged. Or maybe it's something else for you. Maybe you're ready to give your life to Jesus Christ today. Then grab that blue card and let us know. We would love to pray with you, challenge you, and connect you. In fact, um, if you guys can raise your hand as part of that team who's going to be, if you're looking for that person, they're right back there. If they want to talk to you and challenge you about what it means to follow Jesus, grab that blue card and talk to them. You can be assured of where you're going when you die. But for the rest of us as the church, I want to challenge you to grab a card this week. Write the name Jesus on it. That's it. Make it simple. Put it on your dashboard. Put it in your mirror. So when you're looking at yourself going, man, I got a lot of new wrinkles. Oh, I done lopped over my belt. You look and you see Jesus and you go, thank God my value is not in that. Your value is in Jesus. Your victory is in Jesus. It's heads. And Lord Jesus, is about you. You save us. You change us. You give us all that we need. You answer the mysteries of our lives. You transform every piece of who we are because you are good and glorious. Would you lead us, Lord, from here to remember you and know you deeply in Jesus' name. Amen.